Have a look, Frank, and we'll get straight into it. Heavenly Father, endless is the victory over death you have won by the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for that victory and we delight in it. And we pray this morning as we reflect on what it means for us and our future as we face death. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with hope as we look to Jesus, the one who pioneered the resurrection and who promises to share his resurrection with us at the end. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I promised yesterday that uh, I'd throw the question back at you that was thrown at me, and so here it comes. If you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? If you could redesign your body, somebody's patting their stomach down the front here, I won't say, who, Christian? Most of us have got a kind of love-hate relationship with our body, don't we? Uh, in shows like Extreme Makeover, Biggest Loser, in our fad diets and our gym memberships. We're obsessed with making and remaking our bodies beautiful. We love them, but we're frustrated by them. We're a vain lot, aren't we? For some of us, the thing that needs changing is more obvious than for others. My bald head here is in my genes. My dad was bald. All of his brothers were bald. Their dad was bald before them. Their dad's dad was bald before them. It's a Smith trait. It goes way back to great-great-great-grandfather Smith. And so when we had our fourth child, Calvin, most people assume that we... Jeff's got it already. <laughs> most people assume that we, we named him in honour of the great reformer, John Calvin, from the 16th century. And it's true, I am a fan. I like Calvin's theology. Uh, but what clinched the deal for me was when I looked up the meaning of the name in Latin and those who know a little bit of Latin may know the answer already, because in Latin, Calvin means little baldy. <laughs> and so we thought, that's entirely appropriate. It's in your jeans, kid, get used to it. <laughs> I was at the beach once with some friends, uh, and I was just wearing board shorts, not a pretty sight, and uh, they had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and the two-year-old, we spent a lot of time with his family, and the two-year-old seems for the first time noticed that I was lacking hair on the top of my head. Uh, and he looks up and says, Murray, why don't you have any hair on the top of your head? Uh, and the four-year-old, quick as a flash, his older brother gives him the answer, don't be silly, stupid. It all fell down off his head onto his chest. <laughs> That's what you live with. Even a kid this morning asks you, why don't you have any hair on the top of your head? <laughs> Whenever I see my bald head in the mirror in the morning, I think of my pa. He had the same haircut I do. Uh, and he lived a very full life. Uh, he lived through the Depression. <laughs> he lived through the war. He had eight kids. He was a builder. And my dad, his son, still takes great delight in driving us around all the buildings that pa built, the churches that pa built, the houses that pa built, the factories that pa built. Uh, he lived a very full life. But I never knew any of that. I never saw any of that. When I knew my pa, he lost his mind to dementia. He didn't recognise his wife of 50 years. And the last time I saw him, he was a lifeless corpse. And so I look in the mirror in the morning and I see my bald head and I think of my pa. And I tell myself, Murray, that's where you're headed. 
You see, the problem with our bodies is not merely the ones that we feel because of our vanity, are they? It's not merely that we need to lose a few kilos here or get a few more hairs there. Our problems aren't merely cosmetic, are they? They go much deeper. The problem of life is the vanity of life under the shadow of death. You see, God designed us to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth with life. But because of sin, we live under the curse of death. As the writer to the Ecclesiastes saw, death robs life of meaning and significance. It renders even the best of our efforts futile, so that even the most magnificent of our achievements, like we ourselves, will eventually return to dust and ashes. We need more than a makeover, don't we? We need a resurrection. And the good news that God has for us today in this passage is that Jesus' resurrection gives meaning to our bodily life in the present because it gives us deep confidence, sure hope in the face of death. Have a look with me. There are some in Corinth who are denying the resurrection back in verse 12. And that seems to have given rise to the question amongst at least some of them in the Corinthian church. Verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It's the question of a sceptic. It's asked as a taunt. And that should remind us that resurrection was as strange an idea in the first century as it is in the 21st century. In the Greco-Roman world, no one believed in resurrection. Uh, Homer, the great poet, could describe the shadowy existence of souls in Hades, but there was no place in his worldview for a future for the body beyond the grave. Plato could speak of the soul as a pearl in an oyster, uh, the body as the shell which would be discarded at death. And that kind of thinking about the soul and the body echoes down through our Western history. Uh, it's even there in Calvin, sadly, <laughs> who speaks at points, I think his teaching about the resurrection overcomes it, but he still uses this image of Plato as a human being as a soul, the pearl in an oyster and the body will be discarded at death. We're going to see that's nothing like the picture that the Bible gives us here in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, nobody in the Greco-Roman world believed in the resurrection of the body, which is why when Paul went to Athens in Acts 17 and proclaimed Jesus and the resurrection, they thought he was speaking about foreign divinities, plural, foreign gods, plural, Jesus, the masculine God, and his feminine consort, the resurrection. <laughs> they had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. It was only in the Jewish world, in the context of the knowledge of the great creator, who had revealed himself to Israel, that people had learned to hope because God had taught them to hope on the basis of his promises in Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12 and elsewhere. People had learned to hope in the resurrection. And so Paul answers this question of the sceptic uh, who's questioning even the very possibility of resurrection by asking what kind of body do they come with with the same kind of language that the psalmist uses in Psalm 14 for the person who doesn't believe in God. You fool, he says. Because the fool says in his heart there is no God. And the sceptical denial that the great creator can't raise the dead is the same kind of foolishness. But you can ask the same kind of question in faith, seeking understanding, without that kind of scepticism. Uh, and if we're asking like that, it's a good question. And, and you see that because Paul goes on to give an extended answer to it. And so that's what we're about to explore. The promise of bodily resurrection in verses 35 to 49. The first thing I want you to notice is that the resurrection body will be the same body made complete. This is the image of the seed and the plant there in verses 35 to 37. Pick it up at verse 36. What you sow, 
does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Think about a seed of wheat and a wheat plant that might grow from it. Are you talking about the same thing or different things? It's hard to answer, isn't it? There's a deep organic connection between the two because the one has grown from the other. Is it the same thing, the the finished plant, or a different thing? Well, it's almost the wrong question to ask, isn't it? It's the same thing made complete. The same thing having reached its potential. The same thing having come to fruition. And so just as God raised Jesus to life in the same body in which he died, God's promise is that when he raises us from the dead, he'll raise us in the same body, but bring them to completion. The resurrection is the same body made complete. It's like a seed and the plant that grows from it. But if you stick with that image, uh, as soon as you think about it for a minute, you realise that that means even though it's the same body made complete, it will also, for that reason, be radically different. How different uh, is a wheat plant from the seed from which it grows? Look at verses 39 to 41. That's what Paul explores there. For not all flesh is the same, he says. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies. I think he's talking about the sun and the moon and the stars there. Uh, I get that from verse 41. because That's where he goes. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. You see, there are different kinds of bodies, Paul says. We know that just from our observation of the world around us. Human bodies are different from the bodies of birds and fish, verse 39. The bodies of things on earth are different from the bodies of the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens, verse 40. And even in the heavens, there's a difference between the sun and the moon and the stars. They all have a different kind of body, a different kind of glory, verse 41. So it is, Paul says, with the resurrection of the dead. You see, we're not talking about a minor makeover here. The resurrection body is the same body made complete, but for that reason, it will also be radically different, as different as the flesh of humans is from fish, as different as the sun is from the moon. Well, we find it hard to imagine, don't we? <laughs> different in what way? And so Paul spells it out. Different in these ways. Look at verse 42. He says, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. I'm looking at some of the parents here who have teenage kids uh, and perhaps some of the teenagers here know all about perishability. Perishability is the three-day-old yoghurt left in the school bag in the middle of summer. That's perishability. It's the cheese and tomato sandwich stuffed under the bed. That's perishability discovered six months later. Perishable is our bodies. They get old, they break down, they die. They rot in the ground or they're burnt. But the body that will be raised is imperishable. No more rotting in the new creation. It's also glorious and powerful. Look at verse 43. It's sown in dishonour, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. I spoke about my pa and his eight kids. I can't imagine what that was like. Every night for eight years with grandma getting eight kids through the bath, washing them, clothing them, feeding them dinner, putting them down to bed, reading them a Bible story, tucking them in. Eight kids. But at the end of his life, 
the tables were reversed. The one who had washed and fed and clothed a kid had other people washing and feeding and clothing him. That's dishonour, isn't it? It's dishonour. He was a builder. He had strong hands. Those hands which built churches, which built houses, which built factories. At the end of his life, he wasn't even strong enough to lift a spoon to feed himself. That's weakness, isn't it? But not in the resurrection. The body that is sown in dishonour will be raised in glory. The body that is sown in weakness will be raised in power. And all of that is summed up in verse 53. Paul says, This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, the body that is to be raised will be immortal. There will be no more death. And that's the key. Because underneath all of this perishability and weakness and dishonour is the one unavoidable reality that because of sin our bodies are mortal, we die. That's the defining feature of human life since the fall. We try to hide it by sanitising death, by separating the dying from the rest of our society in nursing homes and in hospitals, by filling our lives with busyness and activity so we don't have to think about our own mortality. But in the end we can't escape it, can we? And for some of you here today, I'm aware it's probably a very close reality. Perhaps you've lost people recently that you love. Death will claim us all, but not forever. In the resurrection, this perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body will put on immortality. But how is that possible? We get the answer in verse 44. It's sown, Paul says, a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The body that will be raised is spirit-powered, no longer merely human-powered. Sometimes people have read this and thought that it's a contrast between the physical and the non-physical, between a material body made out of flesh and bones, things you can touch and feel and taste and see, and a non-material body, spiritual in that sense, kind of a soul floating on a cloud. Uh, and some of the translations even push us in that direction by, they, by translating the two words here, a physical body and a spiritual body. But that contrast between physical and non-physical, material and non-material, can't be what Paul means because if you look back in chapter 2, 14 and 15, he uses the same kind of language to say that some of the Corinthians are now already spiritual. Even as they live in their bodies, their spirits, some of them are not, and he's chiding them for it, but others are spiritual. Now, already, it's exactly the same word. So when you read spiritual body, you mustn't think of a disembodied spirit floating around on the clouds playing a harp or something like that that you get in the Philadelphia cream cheese ads or in Simpsons or uh, in all sorts of other forms of popular culture. The contrast here is not between the kind of stuff that the body is made out of, but the kind of power by which it is driven. You see, the body we have now is merely human-powered. Sustained by God, of course, but what Paul is getting at here by saying a natural body is it's human-powered. That's a better translation of this word, a natural body. But in God's grace, when we trust in Christ, God begins his work in us by his spirit. He begins to make us new from the inside out. He changes our wills, he changes our desires, he teaches us to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. And he starts to renew us from the inside out by his spirit at work in us. And when we are raised from the dead, that work is complete. 
and then we will be fully empowered by God's Spirit so we will no longer sin and we will never die. That's the contrast that Paul is drawing out here between a natural body, a merely human-powered body, and a spiritual body, a spirit-powered body, fully empowered by God's Spirit. Perhaps you can imagine it as if you're going 100 years into the future and you go to the Tokyo Motor Show uh, and you walk around the showroom there and at first you're a little bit disappointed because you see all these futuristic cars and they look pretty similar to the kinds of cars that we drive today. They've got four wheels, they've got a steering wheel. Uh, and you go up to one of the salespeople and you say, well, I'm really disappointed here. I thought the cars 100 years down the track were going to be so much better. Uh, and he lifts up the bonnet and he shows you and he says, here's the difference. These cars work on a completely different kind of engine. So they never run out of fuel. In fact, they don't even need any fuel to be added to them. They just keep running and running and running and running. Look, yeah, it's, it, it looks the same on the outside, but actually there's a different power that is driving it. And so this car will never die. It, it's that kind of contrast that Paul is getting at here when he talks about a natural body and a spiritual body. It's not a contrast between the kind of stuff the bodies are made out of. It's a contrast between the power that drives them. You still can't imagine what that's going to be like. Well, Paul says, God has given us a prototype in Jesus' resurrection body. Have a look at verses 45 to 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As is the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That takes us back to Genesis, doesn't it? We're back in the Garden of Eden. Paul is quoting Genesis 2. The first Adam was of the dust, verse 47. He was earthly, verse 48. And all of us, on our own, are like him. We're in Adam on our own. We're destined to die. But, Paul says, there's a second Adam, a last Adam, Jesus, of course, who was not formed from the dust but came from heaven. In Jesus, God has made a whole new start for humanity. That's the point here. The one and only Son of God took human flesh in the person of Jesus and lived the life that Adam was meant to live. But where Adam failed, he succeeded. The life of perfect obedience. He died the death that Adam deserved, entering fully into death. And here's the key. He's come out the other side victorious over death into a whole new kind of life, resurrection life. And so, miracle of miracles, just as all of us, like the first Adam, will die, those who belong to the second Adam, to Jesus, will at the end be raised to new life beyond the grave and share in the same kind of resurrection life that he already enjoys. What will our resurrection bodies be like? Like Jesus' resurrection body. Which is just another way of saying they'll be the same bodies made complete. And so, radically different. They'll be physical bodies, like Jesus' resurrection body was physical. He could eat, you could touch him, you could see the scars in his hands and side, and yet it was a transformed physicality. Does that mean I'll have a full head of hair in the resurrection? Does that mean I'll have a six-pack and no glasses and I'll have to be able to see well? I think if we start thinking like that, we're thinking too small. The key contrast is that the body that is raised will be impenetrable to sin and free from death. It will be immortal. 
That's the emphasis here. That's why Paul says in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking there about our natural bodies, our present bodies, our merely human-powered bodies, our sin-laden mortal bodies. Bodies like those, like those of the first Adam, can't inherit the kingdom of God. They must be transformed through the resurrection. And that's why verse 51, Paul says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Even those who are alive on the great final day, when God sounds the trumpet and Jesus returns and the dead are raised, even those who are alive will be changed, transformed. Even their perishable bodies must put on imperishability. Their mortal bodies must put on immortality so that they too can share in the life of the age to come. Uh, our Confession of Faith in the Presbyterian Church, you may know as the, Pre- uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 17th century. Uh, it's full of gold. You should read it sometime. Uh, and here's what it has to say about the resurrection of the body. Uh, it captures all of this wonderfully. At the last, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies. There it is. And none other, although with different qualities, which shall again be united to their souls forever. Uh, I think it's a great summary of what Paul is teaching us here about the nature of the resurrection body. Have you thought about what kind of day that will be when God raises the dead? Verse 54, Paul says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with, the Im- with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. It'll be a day of victory, won't it? The day of God's great and final victory. It'll be a day when every mind of every person in Christ that's been racked by Alzheimer's or ruined by dementia will be restored raised up anew to think new thoughts. When every heart of every person in Christ, every heart that has arrested and died will be raised up, restored, renewed to beat again. When every lung of every person in Christ, every lung beset with a tumour will breathe fresh new air, the fresh new air of God's new world. When every man, woman and child in Christ will be raised from the dead to worship their Lord and serve their King in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Uh, it'll be a day for singing, won't it? A day of celebrating God's great victory. We'll sing the songs of praise that are dotted through the book of Revelation. I'm sure of that. But we're also going to sing another song. Quite a, a different kind of song. The kind of song we used to sing in the back of the school bus after the footy match when we won 40 nil. Remember that song? Look at the scoreboard. You know that one? The taunt of the enemy. That's the song we've got here. Verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's a look at the scoreboard kind of song. (laughs) Who's the victor here? Not you, death, but God in the Lord Jesus. That's a song we can't quite yet sing with full voice, is it? Death has been defeated in Jesus' resurrection body. But that victory has not yet been shared with the rest of us. We're waiting and waiting and waiting for the final day when he raises the dead and then, even though we might sing this song now in anticipation, then we'll sing this song with full voice, with restored bodies, in glory to God and his victory over death.
Thanks be to God, Paul says, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for how we live now in our bodies? Uh, we've got to think carefully about this because down through Christian history, the church has got it wrong way too often. On the one hand, whole swathes of Christian history have been characterised by people treating the body harshly. Uh, there's a whole tradition influence going back to the Greek philosophers Plato, coming into Christianity through uh, the heresy Gnosticism and then coming into mainstream Christianity of, teaching the, uh, of treating the body harshly, as if matter, substance, flesh and blood is evil in and of itself. And therefore you've got to deny those aspects of your uh, individuality that are bodily. Sex and food and drink are bad, they're evil, uh, this tradition has taught. Uh, it's led some people my, uh, to, into extreme actions. My favourite is a guy called Simeon the Stylite. Have you heard of him? Uh, he spent 32 years, this is about the 4th century, 32 years sitting on top of a 13 metre high pole with a ladder going up, uh, being, having just bread and water ferried up to him on a conveying belt <laughs> because he thought that the body was evil and he had to deny it. And to be more spiritual, he thought you had to become less bodily. He didn't understand that God had created our bodies good and that God will raise our bodies anew. That to become more spiritual, you don't have to become less bodily. You have to use your body in ways that glorify God. I'm guessing though that's not our tendency <laughs> down that end of the spectrum. I don't see many people in the church these days living on top of a pole. Uh, our tendency is probably at the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? To pamper our bodies, to indulge our bodies, to eat and drink and be merry. Uh, and that's just going along with the culture of our day, which is also a misunderstanding of the reason why God has given us bodies. Our bodies are good gifts from God, so we don't deny ourselves just for the sake of self-denial. We enjoy God's good gifts of food and drink and sex with thanksgiving as gifts from God. But we also need to remember that our bodies belong to God for eternity. God created our bodies. He has bought us with a price. And therefore, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, this very same letter just a little bit earlier, where he used our bodies for his glory in the ways that he intended. So I hope that you can see that what that means is that what we do with our bodies really matters. What we do with our bodies really matters. I've got a negative and a positive side of that. On the negative side of that, what we do with our bodies really matters. Have you thought about your hands? Have a look at your hands for a minute. Who created those hands? God did, right? Who gave you those hands? God did. Through your sin, through your own evil desires, those hands have become enslaved to sin and subject to death. I look at my hands, given by God, knit together in my mother's womb by him, and yet through my sin, enslaved to sin, subject to death. But God has redeemed these hands at the cost of the blood of his son. More than that, even though these hands will die, God will raise these hands. And it's with these hands, not some other replacement hands, but these hands that I will serve him for eternity. Have you thought about that? How dare I take these hands and use them for violence? Have you thought about your eyes? created by God, knit together by him in your mother's womb, redeemed at the cost of the blood of his son. 
destined to be raised anew. God gave you these eyes to behold his glory. It's with these eyes that you will see God. How dare we use our eyes to look on evil, to look with lust and with greed. You thought about your tongue? Who created your tongue? God gave you your tongue. He knit it together in your mother's womb. He's redeemed it at the cost of the blood of his son. And when you die, he will raise you up so that with this tongue, not some other tongue, not some replacement tongue, but this tongue, yes, transformed, yes, made new, yes, glorified, yes, radically transformed, but this tongue, this is the tongue that will praise God for eternity. And you use it for slander and for gossip. What we do with our bodies really matters. Our bodies belong to God. We use them for his glory. That's the negative side. On the positive side, what we do with our bodies really matters. And see, the resurrection teaches us about genuine spirituality. The Corinthians were really confused about this. They thought that spirituality was all about giftedness, that having the gift of knowledge or of tongues or of prophecy made you somehow more spiritual, more godly. But Paul says you're still unspiritual because there are factions and divisions amongst you, because you're going to the extremes of asceticism, denying the body, and immorality, indulging the body. You're still unspiritual. And so if you ask yourself the question, what kind of life is truly spiritual? What kind of life will God vindicate? What kind of life does God look at and say, yes, that's the kind of life that I had in mind when I created Adam? Well, the resurrection gives us the answer, doesn't it? Because it tells us which one life God has already vindicated. The one life that God looked at, the one life of perfect obedience that God looked at and said, yes, that's the life I had in mind when I created Adam. It's the life of the Lord Jesus of course. His life of perfect obedience, given over even to the point of death on the cross. And so that teaches us what genuine and true spirituality is all about. The genuinely spiritual life is the life that deeply bears the imprint of the cross. The life that gets its hands dirty in the service of others. The life that has a sweat-covered brow from service and love. The life, perhaps, even that is stained with blood from a crown of thorns because it's been given over in sacrifice to others. That's the genuinely spiritual life. In a word, you could say the genuinely spiritual life is the life of love. That's where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 13, earlier on in this same letter. And so if we're tempted to think about what a genuinely spiritual life means and we're tempted to think like the Corinthians that it's all about our giftedness, about tongues or prophecy or about our knowledge or about spiritual experiences, the resurrection teaches us the absolute priority of love over giftedness. It teaches us that the best index of spiritual maturity is conformity to the cross because it was the cross-shaped life of Jesus that God raised up and put his stamp of approval on and vindicated and said, yes, that's the kind of life I had in mind when I created Adam. And the good news of the resurrection is that for the life in Christ, the life that bears the imprint of the cross, That labour is not in vain. Have a look at verse 58. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Nothing done in the Lord, nothing done in love for the Lord will be lost. All of it matters. None of it is in vain. There's a bit of discussion about this verse uh, and uh, if you want to chat to me afterwards I can point you in the direction of a couple of journal articles where there's some debate about how to interpret this verse. Some people are keen to limit uh, the verse to mean uh, when it speaks about our labour in the Lord or the work of the Lord to the kind of work that we do in sharing the good news and building the church directly uh, through Christian disciple, explicit Christian discipleship and mission. I can't see that here myself. Uh, Paul is speaking to the whole church. Earlier on in this same letter, he's uh, encouraged them, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. He's speaking not just to some particular section of the church and not talking about just some particular activities in their lives. He's talking about the whole of their lives in Christ as they serve the Lord. That's why I can say to the Colossian slaves in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. So I think my view here is that we're talking about the whole church and the whole of their lives, not sin of course, but the whole of their lives as they seek to glorify God in their bodies. And Paul says somehow all of that, all of your labour in the Lord will be caught up in the resurrection, will be part of the great renewal when Jesus comes. You see, death robs life of meaning, but the resurrection gives it back. The resurrection fills life with meaning. Not just the stuff we do in church. Of course that, absolutely that. Not just our quiet time, uh, the times that we spend in devotion to the Lord. Yes, that, of course that. But also our physical labour, our teaching, our acts of kindness, our management of our money, our leading of our family, our caring for our kids, our, politi- our p- political action, all of that, insofar as we do it for the Lord, for his glory, is not in vain, Paul says. All of it does matter. All of it will matter. You notice I'm being a little bit vague about how it's going to be connected to the new world? and that's because I don't know. Uh, does it mean that the churches that Par built, the factories that Par built will somehow be there in the new creation? Uh, I don't think so. The body that is now must die before it is raised. Uh, some of those buildings are already falling down. Uh, and uh, they must die. Uh, but the labour that Par put into them, labour in the Lord, was not in vain. Somehow, somehow, it will be caught up in the great renewal when Jesus comes. When you start to understand that, the power of the resurrection, the promise for bodily resurrection in the future, it empowers you to live, like Jesus, a cross-shaped life of service and sacrifice in the present, doesn't it? It enables you to give of yourself fully to the Lord in all that you do, using your body for his glory. We had the great privilege in the church that we're part of of being connected to a woman named Gladys Spain. Do you may know her story and Graham? Uh, they were missionaries in northern India. Uh, they were over there with their two boys. They were medical missionaries working in the leprosy mission there. Uh, and they'd been there for a number of years before Graham went away one weekend with the two boys. They were, they were nine and seven or something like that uh, at the time. Uh, they went away to a conference over the weekend and they were sleeping in their combi van as missionaries in India do. <laughs> Uh, at this conference and in the middle of the night while Graham and the two boys were asleep. 
some Hindu extremists who didn't like the work that they were doing, doing it in the name of Jesus, covered the car in petrol and set it alight and Graham and the two boys were killed. Gladys, of course, was devastated. She came home to Australia. She was comforted by family and friends. She grieved. But then she went back to India, back to the same hospital where she'd been working. And the Indian media caught hold of this. <laughs> and the newspapers, you can still you Google it, Gladys Staines, and, and you'll see some of the newspaper reports. They, they got hold of this. And they interviewed her. And they asked her, how on earth are you doing this? Why on earth are you doing this? And she gave a very simple answer. She quoted the words of an old Christian hymn, you might know it. She said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. You see, that's the kind of power that the promise of resurrection gives to Christian service in the body, in the present. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Seek his glory. Seek first his kingdom in your work, in your family, in your sports club, at church, as you share the good news, as you seek to win people for Christ, as you seek to grow them to maturity in Christ, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. How about pray? Heavenly Father, we stand in awe at your grace and your power that you put to work in the Lord Jesus when you raised him from the dead. We thank you that we who because of our sin deserve nothing but your condemnation, deserve nothing but death. Through him receive life, resurrection life, by your grace. And so Father we pray that you would make us people whose lives are shaped like his life by the cross. Make us people whose lives are given over in service and sacrifice for others, for their good, for your glory. We pray that you would enable us to do that in the hope of the resurrection. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.